I really hate to see this series end, but for an entirely different reason. Um, I had this series in my head for so many years, and that song just cranking and cranking and cranking in my head. I uh, love the song. And just a word to you, if you go online and listen to the original by the Cardigans, you won't be able to tell the difference between uh, Julia singing it and uh, the lead singer of the Cardigans. Uh, she does such a wonderful job on that song. Anyway, uh, yeah. <laughs> So each week we've said that this is a series about this capacity that God has given to us, and it's an extraordinary capacity to change our minds, and by that, change the entire direction of our life. I don't care who you are today in here, how old you are, how stuck you may feel in a certain form of life, the truth is you can change your mind today and change the entire direction of your life if you choose to. God has given us that capacity. Each week I've turned to one word in the New Testament. We have this word 58 times. New Testament written in Greek. The Greek word is metanoia. It's generally translated in our New Testament, repent or repentance. And it actually simply means to change one's mind based on new insight. I get new information. I go, ah, now that I understand that... I'm going to head in this direction instead of that direction. Uh, we tend to think of it in church world, you know, mourning for your sins or maybe doing penance for your sins or something like that. But the actual word, when Jesus used it, when the apostles used it, this is what it meant. We've added these religious trappings to it that the scripture didn't have at all. Well, we come down today to the subject of could my associations use in a race and rewind? And... Uh, we are relational beings. Uh, it's, there's no way of, you know, getting around that. We are made by Christ and for Christ. Our primary relationship was meant to be with Christ. We are meant to then relate to one another from our central relationship with Christ. When I'm first united with Christ, I can then relate to you in a healthy manner. But that's how God built us. And so human beings are always influencing one another you may not think about it but you are always influencing someone and you are always being influenced by someone this is the nature of being a relational being now we live in a unique time in human history because you know up till now there was no real technology where you could communicate with masses of people simultaneously and so all of a sudden we live in a day and age where influence has expanded on a scale that we can't fathom it because we were born into it. Whereas before, the only people that would really influence you would be the people that were close to you, maybe in your family, maybe in your village, you know. All of a sudden now, we are influenced all the time by complete strangers, people that we will never actually interact with, but we see them on screens or we hear them, you know, in various ways, and they can have influence on us around the clock as well as the other people that we actually interact with. And sometimes, sometimes influence can feel a bit overwhelming. Let's think about it. We start out in this life being completely under the influence of others. When we are babies, when we are children, we are pretty much helpless. We are just driven along by the influence of those that bring us up, at least to a time. It reminds me of a story that, that I came across this week. There's a guy named Ben Carpenter, and back in June the 6th, 2007, he was uh, in Paw, Paw, Michigan, where he lived, and he was crossing an intersection, 
And it was there that he was going to meet an individual, a 52-year-old truck driver, and come under the influence of this 52-year-old truck driver in a most unpleasant way. Because, you see, Ben Carpenter was in a wheelchair. And as he was crossing the intersection, the truck driver never saw him, bumped his wheelchair, spun it from sideways to forthright, and then the light turned green. The 52-year-old truck driver drove Ben Carpenter in his wheelchair for over five miles. People were screaming. People were waving their arms. Police were chasing. But here's Ben. There's the actual wheelchair. It got hooked into the grill, if you can see it, the handles on the wheelchair, hooked into the grill. It was burning all the rubber off of his tires. It was just leaving a patch of rubber. But Ben was unscathed. So he was completely under the influence. He was, he was being taken where he didn't want to go. <laughs> and some of us, we start out life. Not our fault. Not our fault. We're completely under the influence of caretakers. And some do a good job. And they take us just where we need to go to develop to be healthy human beings. And others do not. But... God never, you got to hear this, God never allows us to be so influenced by other human beings or circumstances that, that we are completely, hopelessly enslaved, helpless to do anything about it. God loves us too much. He is not going to leave our fate to other fallible human beings. He always intervenes. He always gives us the capacity to be influenced in a different direction if we so choose. Well, I'm going to turn you now to an Old Testament portion of Scripture, and we're going to start from there, and then I'm going to show you some other things. And here's what I want to say, though, about this message. And if you you don't mind, go ahead and turn to page 264. You'll be looking at Joshua 23, and I'll give you a little background real quick. When you come to Joshua 23, uh, Moses has died off, and Joshua has taken over leading the new nation of Israel. And now Joshua himself is an old man. He's led them Uh, In a a seven-and-a-half-year campaign to take what was called the promised land, he's ruled over them for a while, but he's old. He's 110 years old, and now he's passing the baton. Israel is about to head into the most chaotic uh, generation of their history where we read about it in the book of Judges. Anyway, that's the background. But here's what I want to say. I'm going to be really careful to make this point. This message is not... It is not about giving to any one of us um, a clear picture and and a solid reason to separate ourselves from some individuals. I mean, it could be that some of us come in here today because inevitably in a crowd like this, there's some people that come in and they're just, they're just looking for a sign. They're looking for a word. They're looking for some reason to cut some people out of their lives. Okay? They're looking for justification. Uh, They're looking for validation to cut some people out of their lives. It's not what this message is going to do. If you are looking for that, this message is going to frustrate you. And I apologize for that in advance. But what it is going to do is to give each of us a perspective on our associations so that we can recognize those that are dangerous and we can also at the same time receive those that are developmental. So, so that's the goal of this message. And uh, for you that are looking for something a little more 
uh, direct for your circumstance. I'm sorry, but that's, that's an impossible thing to do in a message like this. Anyway, Joshua 23. Let's uh, read a few verses there. And I don't have my glasses, but, but don't worry. It'll, it'll come out okay. <laughs> if a word or two sounds odd, it's because I can't see. <laughs> I'm going to read verse 1 through 3, then we're going to go 6 through 8, then we're going to quickly look at 11 through 13. Here we go. It said, A long time had passed after the Lord had made Israel secure from all their enemies, and Joshua was very old. So Joshua summoned all Israel, including the elders, rulers, judges, and the leaders, and told them, I am very old. I got a feeling they knew that one. He was 110. You saw everything the Lord your God did to all these nations on your behalf. For the Lord your God fights for you. Let's go to verse 6. Be very strong. Carefully obey all that is written in the law scroll of Moses so you won't swerve from it to the right or to the left. Now we get into the associations. Or associate with these nations that remain near you. You must not invoke or make solemn declarations by the names of their gods. You must not worship or bow down to them. But you must be loyal to the Lord your God as you have been to this very day. Verse 11. Watch yourselves carefully. Love the Lord your God. But if you ever turn away from, if you, excuse me, but if you ever turn away and make alliances with these nations that remain near you and intermarry with them and establish friendly relations with them, know for certain the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you. They will trap and ensnare you they will be a whip that tears your sides and thorns that blind your eyes until you disappear from the good land the Lord your God gave you we can stop there very very stern clear message of separation the Israelites were God's nation that he established that he was going to reveal himself to them and as they received Uh, writings they were to start to accumulate them and preserve them and pass them on so that he could then reveal himself through the nation through the written record to yet other nations culminating in the uh, personal uh, appearance of Christ the Messiah the creator himself so they needed to be separate from influences that would tear them away from this loyalty to God and to his word because they were meant to demonstrate this is what it looks like on the earth if people walk with their creator. And if they were confused in the way that they were walking and they started intermingling their values, their their beliefs and so forth with other nations, it would distort the message that God was trying to reveal about himself. So they were given strict separation. Now here's where the problem comes in. It is not an unusual thing to meet Christians today that think, yeah, man, that's what we do. When it comes to those that are not yet followers of Christ, we need to stay away from them. We we need to separate from them because they will surely pull us down, pull us away, and influence us in ways that God doesn't want us to be influenced. And so we insulate ourselves from those that are not yet Christ followers, thinking that this is pleasing to God, that this is going to make us holier and that's the way he wants us to live. And we go to portions of scripture like this for the validation. We say, see, he told the Israelites, stay separate, stay separate. Don't intermarry. Don't have friendships with them. Don't intermingle with them. Don't, have, don't share ideas with them. Don't have discussions. Have nothing to do with them. But that was then. 
This is now. Let's think for a moment. Who is he talking to? He is talking to a nation that's newly formed. He is talking to a people that had no Bible. They were just accumulating the Bible. They had, you know, maybe the first, what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books. They did not have, the everyday Israelite did not have access to those scriptures to read them readily. They had no foundation. They had no revelation of God in Christ. So let's, 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 no Bible, no Christ. Number three, no church, no community of people that possess God's word, that study God's word, that internalize God's word, that were loyal to Christ, who knew Christ, who lived out the Christ. Like they had none of that. They had none of that. They were extraordinarily vulnerable. They were surrounded by nations that had all sorts of polytheistic beliefs, and particularly the Canaanite religions were pretty, pretty rough going. One of the reasons Israel, uh, God wanted them to stay separate was because of the practices of these Canaanite religions. They, they were pretty much fertility religions because everything was about fertility, man. You had to have plenty of kids because you needed workers and you needed you know, your own little army to protect you. You had to have plenty of crops because you, know, you starved if you didn't. Your cattle had to reproduce. So everything was about fertility. And they would worship these pagan gods and goddesses that promised to make them very fertile. And they believed in something called sympathetic magic. And sympathetic magic is this. They believed that if they did things on a small scale, the gods and the goddesses would do it for them on a big scale. Hence, one of their practices was what we would call cultic prostitution. Uh, Orgies originated with these Canaanite religions. In other words, they thought if they got together, had crazy sexual activity, sympathetic magic, small on earth, it would cause it to be big in the heavenly realm, and then they would have many kids, and then many, you know, the crops would reproduce and so forth. They were also very syncretistic. They were not separatists. They didn't mind blending with anybody's other religions, and so the Israelites were in danger of saying, hey, hey, you can still worship Yahweh, but try a little bit of Baal worship too. Come to the, come to the party at the temple tonight, you know, and see what goes on there. So, it was a very dangerous thing. Another thing that they practiced were child sacrifices. Uh, they would take children and put them to death to offer them up to these gods so that they would have more uh, prosperity and more fertility. They would often take a child when they were building a new house or a new city, and they'd bury the child in the wall as a dedication to these, um, these gods and goddesses. They would burn children in the fire. So th this was a very evil, dangerous system that God's warning them from. But let's go to now. That was then. No Bible, no Christ, no church. How many of you here possess a Bible? Can I see your hands? Okay. And you're in a church, <laughs> and you've at least heard of Christ. You at least know that he came. So you are light years ahead of these people in knowledge, in foundational truth. Hence, listen to what Jesus says to us. Let me, let me show you this little thing I threw together real quick. Oh, I forgot to give the definition. <laughs> Influence, the capacity to have an effect on the character development and behavior of someone. Let's go past that. All right. This is now. Jesus says in Matthew 18 through 20, this is after he had risen from the dead, he said, 
Go and make disciples of all nations. He tells his people, you, me, all of us. He says, go, make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And I'm with you to the very end of the age. Far from being separatist, we are told to go. We are told to take the message, the truth about God and the truth about life to others. We are not to, to shrink back. Next thing he says, Matthew 5, 13 and 14, he says that we, his followers, are to be like salt and light in society. What did he mean? We are to influence our environment, our culture, our associations. We are not to be influenced by them. You see, you put, some, you put salt on something, it changes it. It changes the flavor. You know, meat gets salty. The salt doesn't get meaty. You know, you, you <laughs> yeah, light. I don't care how dark a room is. You turn on a light, the light overcomes. Everything changes. Light changes darkness. Darkness is just the absence of light. Jesus is saying, you, my followers, you are to walk through life as powerful influencers, so powerful that you influence everyone, every environment you're in, but you yourself are not influenced by it. Now, we know that there are stages in our life where that's not true. When we are brand new followers of Christ, we, we don't have a lot of time to develop and grow and put off our old self and we don't have a lot of information. We're still going to be weak and we might need to practice some boundaries and separation like the early Israelites when they had no Bible and they had no Christ and they had no church. Well, when we start out, we're kind of weakened too. When we first turn to Christ, we're, we're still susceptible to a lot of influences from our old life. But ultimately, God wants us to grow quickly so that we are salt and light. Let me go on. Romans 12, 21. Far from being scared of evil and touching evil, we are those that are supposed to overcome evil with what? We are to influence it. It is not to influence us. And then finally, Romans 14, 12 says that each of us are going to give account for ourselves when we stand before God to be assessed on how we live this life. We are never going to stand in judgment and say, it was not my fault. That person, that person, and that person influenced me. They misled me. They misguided me. They didn't invest enough in me. They didn't encourage me enough. They didn't build me. Let me tell you, just save all that because it's not going to go down in judgment. I'm responsible for myself. And so are you. This means then that God has given us the capacity not to be dragged along by the influence of others. Not to limp through life beaten, battered, and scarred complaining that we are irreparably damaged because of the influence of somebody else in life. We, we, we do that if you want to, if you want to cheat yourself. But that's something that God says is never going to be the case. He's always going to be available to provide resources that we don't have to be influenced in those ways. All right, so now we have the balance. We are not to be those that separate from things in fear like the early Israelites, yet there are times where we need intelligent boundaries, intelligent separation, because the truth is we go through different stages of development. Sometimes I'm very susceptible. In my early years as a Christ follower, I'll just give you, you know, a couple things. I had to really break away from the culture I was in. I was kind of in the drug culture. We were the first ones to do this kind of thing, and I had to break away from 
the people I hung with, from the music, the whole nine yards. I tried mixing in and trying to lead them to Christ. It didn't work. They ended up, you know, kind of their influence won out. I was too weak in the starting point. Could I be in those environments now? Of course. We grow. We mature. We, we, we get our foundations. So you have to be wise about this. All right. So let's, let's recognize that there are still some dangerous associations, even for New Testament Christ followers. And God wants us to be aware of it. In the book of 2 Peter, chapter 2, we read. <laughs> ah, I think there was supposed to be something before that. Verse 2, two verse 1. There we go. How did that happen? Okay, a- anyway. Um, he says, false prophets appeared in the past among the people, and in the same way, false what? False teachers will appear among you. Old Testament, prophets. New Testament, teachers. Scripture is completed in the New Testament era. It goes on. But you, my friends, already know this. Be on your what? Be on your guard. Then so that you will not be led away by the era of lawless people. That word is important. Lawless people and fall from your safe position. Let's go on. We'll come back to that lawless thing. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of what? Destructive Destructive habits. For we are slaves of anything that has conquered us. Peter is warning about teachers and this happened in the New Testament era when the scripture was still being formed. Particularly they were called Gnostics. They, They taught that, hey, uh, anything to do with your physicality, it doesn't really matter because your, your physicality is all evil. So you can just plunge yourself into all kind of sin and debauchery. It doesn't matter because your, your body is just, you know, it's useless anyway. The only thing that matters is what you know, what, what knowledge you have, what your beliefs are. That's all that counts. And they penetrated into the Christian communities and they were teaching this stuff. They were telling people, hey, be free. Do what you want. Follow your impulses. It doesn't matter. God's already given up on these, these physical bodies and lives. His forgiveness is blanket forgiveness. So sin, man, the more you sin, the better it makes God look. The more his mercy looks good. So just go for it. This is kind of their message. And you find this scattered throughout the New Testament, warnings about this. So this is the danger of hearing messages that start to cause us to drift from our steadfast devotion to God's truth. And God's truth is just meant for our good. I mean, we we still struggle with this notion that, oh, sin is just something that God made up some arbitrary rules. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. It's just because he wants to show his power. But that's not true at all. He gave us these principles because he designed us a certain way. And when we don't live according to our design, something gets broken and destroyed. And we hurt ourselves and hurt one another. When we do what God calls sin, you cannot, I cannot ever escape the consequence. I may, know, I may not know that it's occurring, but it's occurring. Nevertheless, it's just the way we're designed. So sometimes we need to be aware that teachers that kind of start to say things to us that drift us away from our steadfast obedience to God's truth. It sounds like they're offering us freedom, but like that passage said, they themselves are not free. They're held in bondage to all kinds of destructive habits. So that's lawless associations we need to be very careful about. And this can happen. I'm not going to ask you to raise hands, but I guarantee you, you've met Christians that say, you know, oh man, you, you need to chill. You know, you need to live a little. You know, God knows we're not perfect. 
You know, if you just you sin a little, you get, he knows you're going to sin a little. Just go on and lighten up, man. It's all about grace. When you hear that kind of talk, you know this is a fool. This is a fool. This is somebody that doesn't know God, doesn't know his word, doesn't know the destructive power of sin. Sin is nothing to be played with. It's like looking at poison and then deliberately drinking it. Inevitably, consequences will occur. The next thing that we need to recognize as a dangerous association is what I'm going to call legalistic associations. And Jesus warns us about these. He says, woe to you, experts in the law, you Pharisees, hypocrites. You cross land and sea to make one convert, and when you get one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. In the same conversation, he called the same men that he was talking to a pack of snakes. So I don't know where we get these images of Jesus, that he never confronted people, but that's not biblical. He goes on. Therefore, now this is New Testament, uh, the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul talking, he says, Therefore, do not anyone judge you with respect to food or drink or in matter of feast or new moon or Sabbath days. I feel like a verse is missing here too. Uh, okay, there, there's the second part. Even though they have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and false humility achieved by an unsparing treatment of the body, a wisdom with no true value, they in reality result in what? Fleshly indulgence. So here... Paul is warning people about a form of spirituality that I'm going to call legalism. It's, it's observing various things because these things will merit extra favor from God, extra blessing from God. And in those cases, they were observing some of the Old Testament religious feast days and uh, rituals and so forth. And you can hear people today that will kind of lead you to believe that if you do certain things for God, he's got to do certain things for you. We have some of these people today, we call them prosperity preachers. They're the name and claim it. You know, if you, if you ratchet up your faith to believe that God's going to, if you want something, you just need to ratchet up your faith to believe that God will give it to you. And if you believe that you're going to receive it, you'll receive it. It's this notion that we can manipulate God. It's just a form of paganism. All pagan religion is the same. It is man's attempt to appease the deity so that we can get the deity off our back and on our side. So that we can get the deity working for us. What can I do so that you owe me, God, and I don't owe you? And legalistic religion is like that. Oh, you, you're, you're going to be a stronger Christian. You're going to, you're going to be better. You're, you're going to be better than the other riffraff, loose followers of Jesus. If you observe this or if you pray an hour a day or if you do the other. And I'm not against any of these things. I'm just saying that anything we are doing because we think it's going to merit God's favor and it's going to merit him blessing us in certain ways. We are trying to manipulate, get something from God rather than make ourselves available to God. That is not faith. That is not trust. It is the antithesis of faith, even though some of these teachers will say, oh, that's faith. You, you just claim. You, you create things by your spoken word. That is false teaching. It's more like witchcraft, frankly, than it is biblical truth. And these are teachers to be very, very afraid of because they can be seductive. You see, the thing about these, these teachers that these New Testament passages warn us, these are associations that can affect us because they have a pull, they have an appeal, whether it's the lawlessness, the looseness, or whether it's the deeper spirituality, legalistic stuff, the name it, claim it, or whatever form it takes. 
Let me give you an example about how not everything that's uh, seductive and charming and desirable and appears to be valued, it's not always so. Back in 1987, in Guiana, Brazil, there was a building that was partially, um, partially torn down. But it was still, still in decent shape enough that you could go in it. Uh, you weren't supposed to, of course. But two thieves went into this partially um, destroyed building, and they found still some good equipment in there. And so they started pulling the equipment out, and they thought, well, we'll take it to the scrapyard. We'll sell it for scrap metal. So they take it to this gentleman right here, Dever Alves Ferreira. And he had a scrap. Uh, no, notice his hand, by the way. Do you see anything unusual in each hand? Okay. So they, they take what they stole to him, to his scrap, you know, uh, business. And then he and three or four of his fellows that work for him, they take some heavy hammers and they start breaking this stuff apart and some chisels and plowing into it. And as they busted one piece of equipment open, um, they saw this amazing blue powder. It looked like this. And uh, what it was was that. Cesium-137. This is radioactive equipment. This is what they use in pellets to treat cancer patients. This is what you have in various type of radi radiation equi radio equipment like in your dentist office and doctor's office and so forth. They didn't know what it was. And so they were fascinated with the blue powder so much so that they started smearing it on their bodies. Tragic, tragic. His six-year-old daughter smeared it on her body and then ate a piece of bread. It was on her hands, went inside her. She died. Four people died, 112,000 before the contamination ended, 112,000 were affected by this. Four houses had to be completely destroyed. But it looked beautiful. It looked valuable. Everybody thought they were going, getting something out of this. It was attractive. It was seductive. But it was deadly. It just took time to show that it was deadly. And a lot of the teaching that I just share with you very quickly, whether it's lawlessness or legalism, this stuff is deadly to the soul. It's, it's very dangerous for your, your psyche. It's dangerous for your relationships. It's dangerous for your life. Okay. So God wants us to recognize dangerous associations and set up appropriate boundaries. And some of us, we may have some toxic people in our lives as well. Now, I want to be careful here. If you must, Christian, and I'm talking to you that are followers of Christ, who do have the Spirit of God indwelling, who do have access to God's truth to fortify you, who are exposed to His uh, supportive church, if you must, if you are at a state where your development is such that you know the influence of some toxic individual in your life is such that you cannot resist it, they will influence you, you will not influence them, you can't even stand your ground with them, then for a time, if you must set up a boundary, create some separation. And what I urge you to do, though, is before you take those kind of drastic measures, particularly with a family member or one of your core relationships, especially husband, wife, you know, son, daughter, all this kind of thing, before you do that, please talk with someone that, that is spiritually mature, emotionally mature, and objective, and who will, will help you to make sure that you're seeing this thing uh, in the way that you really think you're seeing it. All right. So 
We need to be open, though, to receive influence, receive development from those that are our healthy associations. So let's look first at the most simple of all, comfortable associations. Here we have a New Testament passage, Paul writing to the followers of Christ living in Thessalonica. He says, therefore, do what for one another? Encourage one another. This is to be norm, normative among Christian communities. Encourage one another and do what else? Build each other. So it shows you can influence me and I can influence you. Now, you are not responsible for me. And I'm not totally responsible for you, albeit I am responsible for your development to a degree. Just because, you know, of my situation as a pastor. If I could go back to that verse real quick. So it says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as you are in fact doing. That can't happen. That can't happen unless you and I put ourselves into proximity with one another. Do you agree? I can't encourage you if you don't put yourself in proximity to me. You can't encourage me unless I put myself in proximity to you. I can't build you up. You can't build, you can't build others up unless they put themselves in proximity to you. Do you see what I'm trying to say? There, there's the need for intentional, what Scripture calls fellowship, oneness as Christ followers, so that these things can occur. I need to be open to influences from fellow followers of Christ that encourage me and build me up. I, I need to be, uh, have, have openness to that kind of interaction. Now, there's one last, one last form uh, of, de of a, a developmental associations that we're not likely to recognize. Um, and yet they can actually be some of the most vital and uh, deep developmental associations that we have. But they don't feel that way or look that way on the surface of all, at all. Let me share these words with you from 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul. Well, I'm just kind of calling these uncomfortable associations. Just curious, how many of you have some uncomfortable associations with people? Can I see your hands? Okay, that's good. <laughs> Paul's going to talk about uncomfortable associations he encountered in Ephesus. And he describes it this way. He says, we were burdened excessively. This is people, people in Ephesus were burdening him this way. We were burdened excessively beyond our strength. Have you ever had somebody that... that they are so uncomfortable to interact with that you just feel like they're just sucking the very life out of you. I will ask you on this one. Have you ever you got somebody like that? You just feel like you're going to kill your soul. Can I see your hands? Okay. That's what he's describing. We were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of living. He's saying, man, I just thought I was going to die. These people were on us so fiercely. They were so uncomfortable to interact with. He goes on. Indeed, we felt as if the sentence of death had been passed against us. Paul is saying, I thought that God had just made up his mind that our time was over. These people were too much. They, they were going to literally kill us. So that, why would God allow us to be so uncomfortable in an association? Why? Why? So that we would not what? Trust in who? Ourselves. My power, your power is limited as a human. But in who? Who does what? So he's saying some of your associations are going to feel so uncomfortable. You're going to feel like it's killing you. And like you can't, you just can't live with this. It's, 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 going to it's literally going to take you out. 
And you may feel like, God, why are you letting this happen? Why don't you do something? And God is saying, I'm letting this happen so that you'll stop depending on yourself and you'll find that I am really here. I love you. I never leave your side. I care more about you than anybody alive. And if you will, in your desperation, reach out, you will find that I am actually there and I can do something for you in you that no human being on the outside can do for you. You've got to be willing to go down this dark trail before you find me, though. You have to reach. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've got to reach desperation until there's nothing left in you at all that we find that desperate energy allows us to lay hold of the God who's always there, and we find a new strength, a new ability to influence to stand loving, to stand in righteousness, to stand in kindness, to stand in goodness and not be influenced by the pressure, by the toxicity, by the evil maybe of those that are seeking to influence us in detrimental ways. Now I'm going to close with an idea and a story. And this story is going to be uncomfortable. But it's an important one, I'm convinced. I want you to picture in your mind, I want you to picture what might be the most uncomfortable interaction you could ever have with somebody. What might be the most uncomfortable, the person, the type of person that you would be the most uncomfortable engaging with, interacting with. Think about the person that maybe in your mind, that's the worst person I could ever imagine. I, I could never imagine associating in any way with that person or that kind of person. You got something in your mind? Just, just let your mind go around a little bit. And I want to introduce somebody to you. Here he is. His name is Daryl Davis. Chances are you've never heard of him. Let me tell you a little bit about Daryl Davis. He's born in 1958 in Chicago. 1968, when he was 10 years old, his family moved to, uh, I believe it's called Belmont, Massachusetts, and he found himself in a very different environment. He uh, was in an environment where only him and one other child were the only two black kids in an entire school. He didn't know. He didn't even know he was different than anybody else. He joined the Cub Scouts in Belmont, Massachusetts, and they had a parade. It's a small town, evidently. And so they had a parade for the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and Cub Scouts and so forth. And they're marching in the parade in this little bitty town, and all of a sudden, Daryl feels a stone hit him, and then another, and then another, and then bottles, and another. And finally, the Cub Scout leaders, they come, and they put their bodies over him, and they shelter him, and they drag him off the street. And they try to explain to him what's happening. He's like, why, why are they throwing stones and bottles at, at us Cub Scouts? And they said, they're not throwing them at the Cub Scouts, Daryl. They're throwing them at you. He said, why are they throwing them at me? He said, because you're black. And he said he was so confused by that. He, he, didn't, he didn't understand it all. So he went home and he told his parents. He said, this is what happened. And, and how can they hate me when they don't know me? And his parents tried to explain to him, you know, some people, some people are just that way. But Daryl's 10 years old. He, he, can't, he can't make sense of this. He says, if you read his story, he says, I didn't believe what my parents told me. I just couldn't believe it. 
This started him on a pilgrimage in his life. As he grew up, he started reading as much literature as he could put his hands on about hate groups, the, the writings of the hate groups from their perspective. He wanted to understand this phenomenon, and it just never settled in his mind. Daryl grew up, and he became a, an accomplished musician, keyboard player. He's got like a blues band. 1983, Daryl and his blues band are right here in Frederick, Maryland at what used to be the Silver Dollar. How many remember the Silver Dollar? I won't ask you if you went to the Silver Dollar. <laughs> He's playing at the Silver Dollar in his band. He finishes his set, and a white gentleman who is probably about 15 years older than him comes up to him. And he says, man, I love your music, man. I love what you guys do. He said, man, you, you play like Jerry Lee Lewis. And uh, Daryl smiled and he said, well, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis learned that style of music from being around, you know, black music, the black musical style, blues and so forth. And the guy said, no. He says, uh, you, you, I never heard of such thing. Jerry Lee was original. He says, no, 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 it's not actually true. So they sat down, the guy bought him uh, he wanted to buy him a drink. Daryl does not drink alcohol, so he had some, some cranberry juice. And they start talking. And then this guy, 15 years older than Daryl, he says, you know, you're the first black man I've ever sat down with to have a beverage in my whole life. And Daryl just started laughing. He said, you're kidding. He said, no, no, it's the truth. And his buddy said, tell him, tell him. His friend was sitting beside him. Go ahead, tell him, tell him. He says, uh, tell him. What? Okay, okay. He opens his wallet. And he shows to Daryl, the man that he's just complimented, the first black man he's had a drink with, he shows him his Ku Klux Klan card. But he continues to talk friendly with Daryl. And he says to Daryl, when your band comes back in town, call me. I want to come out and see your band again. And this started a 30-year journey in Daryl's life. Now, let me just fast forward real quick. It was in 83 when this started. 1996, he's continued. He's been feeding his mind on all kinds of hate literature and racist literature and stuff. So he knows a lot. He has continued to pursue this. He, he can't accept that people will hate those they don't know. 1996, he has his secretary call the imperial wizard. That is the the leader of the entire, of all the Ku Klux Klaners in the whole nation. That's the big dog. And he asked his secretary to set up a meeting with this guy. He says, but when you call him, whatever you do, don't tell him I'm black. <laughs> so she sets the meeting up. And Roger Kelly, who was the imperial wizard, and I hope some of you don't know him, but you might. You might, because he's from Maryland. He met right here in Frederick in a hotel. Right here in Frederick in a hotel with Daryl. Roger Kelly and his armed bodyguard walked into the hotel room and they were stunned to see a black man. But reached out his hand, shook his hand, they started talking. This conversation went on for almost three years. Kelly would come to Daryl's house regularly eat have meals he would go to kelly kelly would invite daryl to his house and they would eat and have meals roger kelly 
presented all of his hateful ideas to Daryl. And Daryl listened. And Daryl then presented his thoughts because he had earned the right to do so by showing respect to this very ugly, inexcusably ugly human being. But Daryl somehow, he saw, saw something more. Let me fast forward with this story. Daryl now, and you can see his story on a TED Talk if you go on YouTube. Daryl has, for want of a better term, converted over 200 Ku Klux Klaners. I saw a video with him standing at Klan rallies, crosses burning behind him, and there he is waving. <laughs> it's remarkable. Roger Kelly, the imperial uh, wizard, is giving a speech. CNN is there, and he stops in the middle of the speech. Daryl's standing right in front of his podium, and he says, You see that man there? I have more respect for him than a lot of you, and I won't say what he says after that. Roger Kelly, the imperial wizard, three years later, gave his robe to Daryl and said, I cannot hate anyone anymore after knowing you. 200 Ku Klux Klaners he's done this with. It is, it is his crusade. He's converted them. They leave the Klan. They forsake it forever. Now, there's a lot of people that, that really criticize Daryl. In fact, here, let me show you this last picture. There you go. This guy forsakes his robe and walks away from the Klan. He's got closets full of these Ku Klux Klan robes. So, what about that very uncomfortable association in your life? Are you sure? Are you sure? That the Christ in you is not powerful enough for you to influence that person. But, but mind you, you might have to invest some years. You may have to listen to some insults. You may have to learn what it is to deny yourself and take up your cross like Jesus. And I'm not advocating this for everyone. If you're not strong enough, don't do it. But I'm just saying, will you expand your boundaries to believe that the Christ in you, the love of God in your heart, is powerful enough to squelch, in some cases, the most horrific evil that we can imagine. So when we're thinking of our associations, are there, first of all, some dangerous associations that maybe you or I have been interacting with, and they are detrimental. They're, they're leading us into a lawless sort of a spirituality where, you know, we think grace is a license to sin, which is idiocy, or we're, we're legalistic. We think that we can pray a certain way or do things for God, and he's obligated to do something for us. That's dangerous stuff. Maybe we haven't we haven't taken advantage of the developmental relationships of God's community. Maybe we need to take some risks and open our lives up a bit so that we can receive from one another and build one another up. Maybe we need to, to give as well as receive, you know. And then some of us, we've got some of these really, really uncomfortable associations that we've been thinking we've, we just have to run from, cut out of our lives. And frankly, maybe we do. I, I'm, I want to be careful if, you know, you're somebody in a physically abusive relationship. God knows. I don't want you taking a beating thinking that that's God's will. Not all about that at all. 
But I, I just think that there's sometimes we cut people out so quickly that if we just learn to listen, the thing that Daryl keeps talking about when you listen to his, his, his um, material, he's written a book too called Clandestine um, Relationships, I believe it's called, and he, he spells it with a K, clandestine, you know, um, is that if you respect people, they almost can't help respecting you back. But that's not easy. So, is God trying to move you to consider some of your associations today because they will influence your life just as you influence yet others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made us uh, in your image, relational beings, and, and what joy we have connecting with you, living from you as we interact with others. And we know that in you, Lord Jesus, there is a capacity to to love and in many cases break evil down. So may your spirit speak to us and may some of us that need some discernment to, to put some boundaries up, put them up. And some of us that just need to be bold and to move forward into some uncomfortable associations, may you give us that boldness to do that. And may all of us know that we don't have to run and hide. We are called to be salt. We are called to be light. We are called to go into the world in your name and make disciples of all people. And that's what you've empowered us to do. Give us that certainty and stir our hearts, I pray, in Christ's holy name. Amen.